Welcome to Creepy Pasta Theater, a show where we explore the strange world of creepy pasta. Join us as we hear tales best left untold, travel roads best left unexplored, and see sights best left unseen. Today's story, Angur Vidal. Original story written by Al Seeger. This story serves as the prequel to a previous original creepypasta called The Truth About Turnip Town. And now, on to the story. Harold, are you sure you want to go through with this? The old man blinked as he came out of his meditative state. He looked up at his girlfriend, Matilda. She was a beautiful woman. Despite being 69 years old, her face was still smooth and radiant. He swore she looked about 30 years younger. He, on the other hand, was 72 and looked every bit the part of a grumpy old man. When they went to town together, people would often mistake them for being father and daughter. Usually, they dismissed it with a chuckle. I need to do this, Maddie, he replied. According to Simon, the bonds we placed on Nama are starting to weaken. If she escapes, who knows what she will do. But why you? Can't one of the younger members of the community go? I considered it, replied Harold. But the trials ahead require a certain mindset and experience that I fear our neighbors might not have. It will be dangerous. I have lived a full life. I feel it would be more appropriate if I go. If I do not come back by sunset, assume I failed and get another member of the community ready. Alex would probably be the next best choice. Well, Simon certainly has the knowledge he isn't much of a fighter. Harold embraced Maddie and gave her a long hug followed by a kiss on the cheek. The old woman knew it would be useless to try to talk Harold out of it. He was stubborn as an ox, but he had the best interests of the residents of Turniptown in heart. She watched as Harold reverently picked up his Vulcanot necklace and placed it around his neck. He shouldered his backpack, slung his rifle over his shoulder, and slid his favorite knife into its sheath. Before heading to the door, he put his warhammer in his custom belt holster. It was an intricately decorated weapon Maddie gave him as a present when they first started dating. It wasn't a true warhammer, just a ceremonial object she had cobbled together from an old sledgehammer head and a sturdy oak branch. She'd engraved a pattern of intricate knots on the head and part of the handle, as well as a runic inscription that read, Thor Hallows. Despite the hammer's ragtag origin, it was functional as a weapon, and he had used it to bash in the heads of many foul beasts. It was one of Harold's most prized possessions. He took one last look around to make sure he didn't forget anything. He opened the door, and a light wind flowed into the trailer. 
a breeze flipped through the pages of the poetic Edda that was sitting on the end table. As he closed the book, he noticed it had opened to the poem Havamal, Sayings of the High One. The number 145 caught his eye, but he had no time to make note of any other contents on the page. As Harold and Maddie exited their trailer, the other residents of Turniptown gathered around. They knew full well what types of creatures lurked in the woods and what dangers their beloved mentor might face. Two men in their 20s approached the couple. Are you sure you want to do this? asked Alex. I'd be happy to go in your place. Harold walked over to his young friend and placed a hand on his shoulder. It's okay, lad. I know what Odin needs me to do. Stay ready in case I don't come back by sunset. The look on Alex's face was one of concern and anxiety. He grew up in poverty on the proverbial wrong side of the railroad tracks. Alex came to Turnip Town after living a life of crime. Most of his delinquencies were minor. Vandalism, petty theft, trespassing, and street fighting. Harold could understand why Alex's life unfolded the way it did. He lacked a caring family and had little in the way of job opportunities. Harold met Alex when he was being attacked by a group of ruffians at a rest stop. The two of them fought the punks off and became good friends. Alex was a strong, agile man and a skilled fighter. If he had a fault, it was that he lacked discipline. Harold noticed this in their sparring sessions and while on patrol together. The man's biggest problem was the tendency to charge into battle without thinking. He was like the berserkers of old, all claws and fangs. His wild swings and unyielding strikes were powerful, but often easy to predict. A clever or experienced fighter could easily take advantage of the openings in his defense and land a counterattack. He then turned to Simon, the younger of the two men. You're sure the bonding spell we placed on Nama will hold? Positive, sir, answered Simon. The energy around her prison has been in flux, but I don't think it's reached critical yet. Regardless, I am concerned. The power from the binding runes is starting to fade. I've never seen that happen before. I went out and checked on her this morning, and the bond's integrity seems to be holding. I could tell Nama was not happy. The moment I showed up, she started struggling and growling at me. The sooner she is dispatched, the better. Harold nodded. He trusted Simon's words, as he was very skilled at rune magic. In many ways... Simon was Alex's opposite because he came from a privileged family. From what Simon had told him, his parents were not very strict. As a teen, he had lived a life of excess. He indulged in illegal drugs, alcohol, and wild parties. Simon's world came crashing down when he injured a pedestrian after a night of drinking with his friends. His family disowned him and he spent the next year hitchhiking and doing odd jobs to get by. Harold brought him to Turniptown after he rescued Simon from hanging himself. 
He was out hunting in the woods when he saw a figure dangling from a tree. He rushed up to help and cut Simon down before he suffered serious injury. Although not the most athletic of their number, he was extremely intelligent and quickly became an expert at rune spells. Harold often wondered if the method Simon used to attempt suicide played a role in his affinity for the runes as it mirrored how Odin obtained the power of these symbols in the first place. The speed at which Simon mastered the staves and learned the workings of the weird was simply astonishing. He knew Simon would do what he could to help him out. The rune mage had a hunch that this expedition would cost Harold something. He just didn't know what. On that, the gods were silent. Harold trusted both men and knew that they worked hard to distance themselves from their checkered pasts. If they continued along their current paths, they would be competent leaders for their settlement. But neither of them was ready for what needed to be done this morning. Alex handed over the map. He had spent the better part of the previous day out in the woods with Simon and several other members of the community looking for a specific pool of water. The old man said his goodbyes and started down the trail into the woods. Officially, the woods were known as Drakewood Forest. It was a large patch of wilderness that was largely inaccessible to the general public thanks to the terrain. There were also several fields and large swaths of farmland and private property bordering Drakewood, which helped prevent people from wandering there by accident. Occasionally, his patrols would pick up a straggler and turn them away before they got too close to the forest. Sadly, every now and then they found torn-up remains. They would give the poor soul a proper burial, as that was all they could really do. Contacting the authorities was out of the question. Harold felt bad, as he knew there were families in town who would never know what happened to their missing loved one. But he firmly believed the fewer people who knew the truth about these woods, the better. Fortunately, the reputation of Turnip Town also helped keep people away. Harold was aware of the reputation his settlement had among the urban folk. Most of the townspeople saw them as lazy bums living off of government welfare checks. That was one of the nicer rumors he was aware of. While it was true that the residents drove people away, it was for their own protection. It was still a shame that people saw him and his neighbors as something less than human simply because of where they came from, but he accepted it in stride. Outsiders could not learn the truth about Drakewood Forest. Exactly what caused the patch of woods to become a haven for supernatural creatures was still a mystery. One possible explanation was a strange ruin they had discovered about five years ago. It was an abandoned military installation that still had equipment inside. The road leading up to the base was overgrown, as was the parking lot outside. 
Harold had served in the Marines for about 20 years. So judging by what he saw, it was probably built in the 40s or 50s. He believed the base was conducting unusual experiments in hopes to gain an edge during either World War II or the Cold War. But somehow, they opened a rift to another dimension instead. Simon also managed to find a news article about a manor in the area that once belonged to the Drakewood family. Back in the 1920s, the family used the home's basement for bootlegging whiskey. Mr. Drakewood, his wife, and three teenage children were gunned down in 1924 when they were caught in a shootout between gangsters who were picking up a shipment and federal agents who were raiding the place. Drakewood Manor was abandoned after that. Rumor had it the ghosts of the family still haunted the manor's halls and that groups of devil worshippers would perform the occasional ritual there. Whether or not the manor's past had anything to do with the strange occurrences in the forest was unknown. Harold was the oldest surviving resident of Turnip Town, and Drakewood Forest was home to strange beasts even before he arrived. But the monsters roaming the woods were not the only danger. Once an individual traveled far enough into the forest, he entered what they called the Anomaly Zone. The woods were much larger than they appeared. By his estimation, Drakewood Forest was probably at least five times larger on the inside than it was on the outside. Someone without a map could easily get lost within. Every member of Turnip Town owned a map showing known safe routes as well as where the friendly creatures resided. Time could also move differently in certain spots. It could flow both slower or faster. Harold often wondered if these space and time anomalies were the reason the road and parking lot around the abandoned base decayed so quickly. To venture too far into Drakewood without a map would be suicide. Weapons were highly recommended as well, for while there are many friendly creatures within the woods, there were many more hostile ones. Nama was by far the most powerful being they encountered. Harold shuddered to think what would happen if that demoness broke free. The battle to contain her was a grueling one, and he thought it was only by sheer luck they won. The fight was not without its casualties. As five members of their community were severely injured during the struggle, and two died. About one hour into his journey, he reached the edge of the anomaly zone. There was no turning back now. He estimated that he would reach his destination within 15 minutes, but he still needed to be careful. Monsters became more common once one crossed the threshold. He readied his rifle just in case. Fortunately, he ended up not needing it, and soon Harold located the pond that Simon had told him about. He took a look around and approached the pond cautiously. It was home to a land white named Feely. Harold and his neighbors were no strangers to these folk. Most of the land whites they were familiar with were friendly, 
so long as they were treated respectfully, but there were a few that were best left alone. They had learned about Feely through another friendly spirit. He had never dealt with this particular white before, so Harold did not know what to expect. He knelt beside the pool, pulled a small metal flask from his belt, removed the stopper, and poured its contents into the water. The flask contained mead that one of the neighbors had recently completed brewing. As the golden liquid hit the water's surface, he spoke the incantation Simon advised him to say. The mead mixed with the water and disappeared. A rock rose from the center of the pond and outstepped a short man with olive skin and pointed ears. Mortal, it bellowed, why do you disturb me? Harold slung his rifle over his shoulder to appear less threatening. Hail to you, Feely. I am called Waytamer, and I mean you no ill will. He used a false name as the residents often did with land whites. It was believed that if a white knew a mortal's true name, it could hold some power over that person's fate. Speak then, Waytamer. Now is the tricky part, and that would be convincing Feely to assist him. In many ways, these beings were not much different than humans. They could be very helpful, but would need a good reason. If Harold failed to make a convincing argument, the best he could hope for was indifference. There is a great evil in these forests, a demon woman named Nama. My companions and I have managed to bind her in a circle of stones, though not without casualties. We have reason to believe that she is on the verge of breaking free. Why should I care? She is your problem, answered Feely. She can summon lesser demons to aid her. If she overwhelms us, then it is only a matter of time before her venom spreads to your pond. Let her come. I can handle her. Ah, but it might not end there, Feely, Harold replied. If she causes enough trouble, the men from the outside world will eventually come to investigate. Not all humans seek to live in harmony with you and the other residents of this forest. They will tear through these woods and with powerful weapons and machines that will tear up the ground, cut down the trees, and perhaps even poison the water. Feely thought for a moment. Harold could tell that the white was concentrating. Supposedly, some of the land whites had a knack for seeing the future. Hopefully, Feely had that power and would come to realize the danger of Nama getting loose and the potential long-term effects it could have. Suddenly, the surface of the pond began to ripple. Several flat stones rose from the depths, forming a path to the island on the center of the pond. The rocks split open, revealing a glowing portal with swirling orange and red lights. Very well, Waytamer, said Feely. You may pass. I shall permit you to travel to the world beyond. Harold walked across the stepping stones, but stopped right before reaching the rock. He felt as if Feely had something to say, but the white said nothing. He looked at the swirling colors in the portal, 
something seemed off. Almost like there was something else he needed to do. He thought for a moment, then remembered the number 145 that caught his attention. Harold struggled to remember that verse. Sayings of the High One was an ancient Norse wisdom poem that covered many topics. It was past the section on social and practical wisdom, but not quite to the Song of Spells. It must have been near the section detailing Odin's quest for the runes. He recited it to himself, and then the words became clear to him. Better not to pray than to ask for too much. A gift demands a gift. That was it. He would need to give something to Feely before continuing. He didn't bring much more than he needed. The only thing he could think to part with was the knife he had carried during his years of service in the Marine Corps. The blade saw him through many situations. He had used it to build shelters, prepare food, and even used it to kill on several occasions. Harold solemnly removed the knife and sheath from his belt and handed it to the white. Feely, I thank you for your assistance. Please take this blade as a symbol of my appreciation. It isn't much, but this knife has seen battle and has saved my life many times. The land white accepted the knife, nodded, and waved his hand. The colors of the portal changed to blue and green. The feeling of unease that Harold felt before lifted. As he walked through the portal, he felt the world around him spin. He was dizzy and felt a feeling of disorientation like he had never known before. But he knew he must endure. After what felt like days of spinning and not knowing which way was up, he came to rest in a marsh. At first he wondered if he was in another part of Drakewood Forest, but then looked up at the sky. It was a strange blue-green color completely unlike anything back home. Harold scanned the horizon. No distinguishing features anywhere, just cattails and swamp grass as far as the eye could see. He picked a direction and started walking. Then, a huge form burst forth from the water. It was an impossibly huge serpent covered in slimy scales with a head the size of a car. The serpent opened its mouth and let out a loud hiss. The ground shook as it lunged towards the old man. Harold fell back from his position and frantically looked around for cover. To his dismay, there was none. He readied his rifle as the serpent lunged forth again. He fired two shots and hit the creature in the neck. The shot appeared to enter the monster's body, but it had no visible effect. He took two more shots, hoping to hit it in the eye, but instead hit the snake's lower jaw causing it to recoil with surprising speed. Harold turned and fled, realizing he needed a different approach. Perhaps the serpent's belly was vulnerable. As he backed away from the water's edge, Harold was both fascinated and terrified by how large the creature was. The serpent once again reared up and got ready to strike. He estimated the part he could see was at least 40 feet tall, and gods knew how much more there was of that creature below the water. 
He shouldered his rifle and squeezed out two more shots, both of which found their mark. Again, the creature showed no signs of pain. The serpent's head came down upon him, but he managed to get out of the way. As the beast's head slammed into the ground where he once stood, Harold fired off two more shots and scored two more hits on the back of the monster's skull. If the serpent felt any pain, it wasn't showing it. Harold expected the monster to rear back again, but it did something he did not expect. The serpent swiped its great head sideways. The old man jumped back but was knocked to the ground. The snake hovered above him, clearly ready to strike. It came down upon him with great speed. There was no time for Harold to roll out of the way, so he held his rifle in front of him. The serpent's jaws closed around the butt and barrel of his gun. Harold held on for dear life as he was hoisted into the air. The situation looked grim. Harold was half in and half out of the monster's mouth. Had anyone else been around to observe this battle, they would have seen a great snake thrashing its head in the air while a pair of legs dangled out of the serpent's maw. He knew his rifle was the only thing preventing him from being eaten right now. He didn't dare try to move it from its current position. To do so would allow the snake to snap its jaws closed, ending his life. He had only one option. He moved his finger to the trigger and fired off his ninth shot. As the bullet penetrated the roof of the serpent's mouth, the beast thrashed around violently. Bits of the monster's brain and skull sprayed into the air. Harold held on to his rifle for as long as he could, but then he realized it was starting to bend under the serpent's death throes. The serpent made one last attempt to bite down. Harold let go of his gun and was flung far from the beast's head. As he looked on, he saw the serpent's mouth slam shut, shattering his rifle in the process. The beast then fell to the ground, finally dead. Harold hit the water with a large splash. He struggled to swim to the surface, but something was pulling him down. He looked around, wondering what horror was latched onto him. He expected to see some horrible tentacle beast or sentient weeds. What he saw was much worse. Surrounding him were his comrades who died while on various missions they undertook while in the military. Despite the murky depths of the water he was sinking into, he could see them as clearly as if they were standing in a field on a sunny day. Each one was horribly disfigured in the manner in which they died. He saw Chris Cooper, who had half of his torso blown off by artillery fire. He saw Ted Brown, who stepped on a landmine and had his left leg torn to shreds. He saw Fred Smith, who was stabbed in the back by an enemy soldier and had his throat slit. Then there was Greg Lawson, who had his brains blown out from a sniper shot after he removed his helmet to scratch an itch. There were many more approaching, but he couldn't identify them clearly. 
even though they were underwater, he could hear their cries. Why did we die, Harold? Why couldn't you save us, Harold? It should have been you, Harold. Join us, Harold. Join us. Harold managed to break his arms free so he could cover his ears with his hands, but it was no use. He could still hear their cries. He felt everything they felt. The pain, the fear, the loss, and the anger at having their lives taken away. The guilt of having survived while so many of his brothers in arm died was too much for Harold to bear. He prepared to give up. He was unable to save the lives of his fellow soldiers, so he didn't deserve to live. The only honorable thing to do was to allow himself to be pulled to the murky depths of the water below and accept his fate. He only hoped another would succeed where he had failed. But then he thought of Maddie. He thought of Simon and Alex. He thought of the other residents of Turnip Town. Memories raced through his mind as he had touched their lives for the better. He was not responsible for the deaths of his fellow soldiers in any way. He did what he could to save their lives on the battlefield. A single line from Sains of the High One echoed through his head. A corpse does good for no one. Those words pushed him on and gave him a sense of purpose. He couldn't let himself fail. With renewed strength, Harold broke free from the grips of his dead friends and furiously swam towards the surface. Upon breaking the surface of the water, he found he was not in the marsh anymore, but in a rocky canyon. The sky had also changed, this time to a swirling purple and red color. Before him was a narrow path. He exited the water, shook himself off, and readied his last weapon. The hammer Maddie had given him. Having no other option, he moved onward and upward. Harold had no idea how long the climb took. He didn't have a watch on, and since there was no sun visible in the sky, he couldn't use that to make an estimate either. He looked above and saw the clouds churning. A rumble of thunder shook the ground. After a journey of unknown duration, he came to the top of a tall plateau. At its center sat a giant in what appeared to be a meditative position. Harold knew to be cautious. Many fairy tales pictured giants as bloodthirsty brutes that would love to feast on a man's flesh and suck the marrow out of his bones if given the chance. Some giants, however, were wise and said to be skilled in magic. He hoped this giant was the latter. Those hopes were dashed as the giant opened his eyes and gave Harold a look of hostility. Without saying a word, the giant rose from the ground and picked up a club by his side. As the giant got to its feet, Harold estimated it was probably 15 feet tall. It was dressed in the hides of some great beast, probably a massive bear or wolf. He could see the glint of armor below the hides, 
as well as sturdy-looking armor plates covering its shins and feet. Of course, the only part that appeared unprotected was its head. Harold knew that since he lacked a ranged weapon, this would be a tough battle. The giant lifted its club into the air and let out a hideous roar as lightning flashed in the sky. The two combatants charged each other. The giant started with a downward swing. Harold dodged to the side and brought his hammer down on the giant's shin. As expected, the blow only echoed off of the creature's armor. Another bolt of lightning tore across the sky. The giant responded by swiping at Harold with his club, but the old man managed to duck with just enough time to avoid getting his head smashed in. Now on the back of the giant's opposite leg, Harold struck at the unarmored knee. The blow seemed to have more impact, and the giant grunted in pain. Still, the damage seemed minimal. The giant managed to catch Harold with a backhanded strike from its massive fist and sent him flying across the plateau. Another bolt of lightning illuminated the sky. As the world spun, Harold struggled to get back to his feet. He barely had enough time to dodge another blow from the giant's massive club. Instead of counter-striking, Harold went on the defensive. He tried to analyze the timing of the giant's swings so he could rush in, strike, and get out of the way before his foe could retaliate. The strategy paid off, and the old man was able to deliver multiple blows to the giant without taking any further damage himself. Lightning continued to flash in the sky, and the thunder continued to rumble as the battle raged on. Harold knew the giant's armor was too strong. He could feel the vibration of each blow of his hammer as it landed on the giant's body. He managed to hit a few unarmored parts, but it seemed to do little good. Harold's mind raced. He did not know how long he had been fighting the giant, but he knew his stamina was nearly spent. Another bolt of lightning arched across the sky. His knife may have been able to penetrate the giant's chainmail, but he had given that weapon up for passage to the strange world. The thunder continued to rumble, and another bolt of lightning illuminated the approaching giant. If only he had his gun, he could have easily shot the giant in the head. Once again, another bolt of lightning tore through the heavens above, while thunder shook the ground. Harold then knew what he had to do. He had his hammer, which was more than just a gift from his girlfriend. It was a symbol of their love and the bond they shared. It was a ceremonial object. It was a weapon. It was a symbol of the leadership he used to guide the residents of Turnip Town. It was everything to him. But Harold knew what he had to do. With all his remaining strength, he threw his prized possession at the giant. The weapon hit square in the middle of the giant's head, and at the same time a bolt of lightning came down from the clouds churning above. The bolt incinerated Harold's hammer and the giant's body with it. The plateau crumbled beneath Harold's feet, 
and he was once again falling through darkness until he found himself lying in the grass next to Feely's pond. Well done, Way Tamer. Harold looked up and saw Philly standing above him. The white helped him up to his feet, then turned to his pond. Philly walked across the stepping stones until he reached the small island. He reached into the rock and pulled from it a sheathed sword. Philly then returned to Harold's side. You have proven yourself worthy with your wisdom, your strength of will, courage, and willingness to sacrifice material possessions that you hold dear. Now, I entrust this blade to your care. This is the sword Angurvadal. A finer weapon I think you will never possess. This weapon will allow you to slay the demoness you have imprisoned. Fare thee well, mortal. Harold smiled and accepted the sword. He thanked Feely then turned back towards Turnip Town. With this sword, they would finally be able to rid the world of Nama and many more like her. Before closing this episode, I would just like to say I realize this is a bit longer than a lot of the creepypastas I've posted recently. I also wanted to give you a little bit of a backstory behind this tale, as well as the truth about Turnip Town. I'm currently involved in a writing project with a couple of friends of mine. We're trying to make an anthology of horror stories. Each of us has the goal to come up with three different stories. We want to eventually get this published through a major publisher, and originally the truth about Turnip Town and this story were going to be in that book. However, one of my friends advised that since I previously did The Truth About Turnip Town as a podcast, they might not be able to publish it. I think he said it was first publication rights or something to that effect. Now, sadly, I lost my patience waiting for my friends to finish up their stories so we can move to the next step in finding a publisher, which is why I made a podcast episode about The Truth About Turnip Town and... That's when I found out I probably wouldn't be able to use that story in a, a published work. Now, whether we will eventually get this book published or not, I don't know, but I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode, especially if you made it all the way to the end here. And until next time, thanks for listening. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at POIGamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio. Look us up on Facebook and email us at POIGamestudio at gmail.com.